0: Thanks for tuning in to episode two of Cosmos Crusaders. Today, we're going to be interviewing Giannina Guzman Caluca. But before we get into our interview with her, um, we just want to discuss a little bit about our name, which is something we should have done in the first episode. But after receiving some feedback, um, we wanted to give a little bit more context as to why we chose to stick with the name Cosmos Crusaders despite the history of the word crusaders and some of the more negative connotations that go along with it. So Gokul is going to go into um, our thought process behind choosing the word and the definition that we're trying to focus on, and why we think it is a good reflection of what our podcast is all about.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I guess, Danae, the the word crusader, um, irrespective of his historical context, means someone who campaigns vigorously for some sort of change in society and politics and sort of whatever they're trying to drive that change. in, And that's sort of what we envision this podcast as representing. Um, Even by just existing in the field, um, the people that we're interviewing and our guests are trailblazers in our field because representation matters so much. Um, It's not everything, but without having representation to begin with, that's sort of like the first step to improving things. And I think that the people that we interview are truly crusaders in our field. Now, getting to its historical context, it is clear that the crusades that occurred during medieval times were just vile acts of colonialism that Europeans used to take control of um, lands that clearly didn't belong to them. And both me and Simi and Cosmos Crusaders as a whole, we thoroughly denounced the medieval crusades. Um, they were horrendous. And as both are of our home countries, um, India for both of us and for Simi, also the Philippines, um, being extremely, extremely affected negatively by colonialism, we know sort of firsthand the effects that acts like the crusades had on people of color. And despite that fact, we sort of wanted to in a sense, use the word crusaders in its positive connotation, because we think that it is our sort of small way in fighting back against that centuries long oppression that um, colonialism has sort of had on both our cultures and so many societies and countries all over the world. So yeah, that's a little on sort of why we decided to name our show Cosmos Crusaders and we welcome any sort of, I don't know, comments, and also just conversation about any of these topics, um, you can always reach out to us at our Twitter, our email, anything like that. Um, we think that conversations like this, these are necessary in our field, and I think a lot of people sort of shy away from them at times, but we think that they're really important. So yeah, so that's um, what we have to say about that. Um, now, our thoughts on our interview that we have with Janina. I thought that our second episode um, went really well. Um, Jeanina So Jeanina is an amazing person, and she is um, I think a lot of the things that we talked about were sort of not what I expected to, um, because the conversation sort of took different turns, and I thought that was really interesting, because um, I learned a lot about Jeanina that I didn't really know before, and that was pretty cool, because she's one of my good friends and classmates. So one part of the interview that I found was really interesting was how she talked about how important her heritage is to her um, in the context of the language itself, of Spanish itself. Um, and I thought that was really interesting to me because that's something that I hadn't really thought about a lot, but it forced me to think about sort of my culture more and my heritage. And I realized how important the language Tamil is itself to me and sort of how just being around people that speak Tamil sort of changes my mood um totally it's just like a totally different feeling that is almost hard to describe in words and i had never really realized that until jenna was talking about that so i thought that that was really interesting yeah so there were just a lot of really interesting parts i thought um simi do you have anything to add
0: yeah jenna is amazing i this was my first chance in really getting to talk to her and get to know her a little bit better and you're right like the the conversation did take a lot of interesting turns um, we talked a lot about community and finding a group of people that can support you during tough times, such as grad school. Um, and for me, someone who's starting grad school in the fall, I think Giannina gave me some really good advice about finding a work-life balance um, obviously school is not everything and in order to even perform well at school you have to prioritize your mental health and your physical health so that you can become the best student possible. Um, So I think that that was very eye-opening and something that I'm definitely gonna have to work on. Um, She talks a lot about her dance team and I thought that was really nice that she's an astrophysicist dancer like that's that's amazing um but other than that i think that her research is also super cool i knew absolutely nothing about exoplanets before today because google doesn't study them um but they're super interesting and the fact that she knows so much about other planets that are miles away is unfathomable to me um but other than that I mean you guys are gonna have to see for yourself because there's a lot of things that we go over with her that um Gok and I didn't mention just now but we hope that you have as much fun watching it as we did making it anything else
1: (laughs) no uh great summary uh you're getting really good at this uh, okay, so we will get into it right now. So, welcome to episode two of Cosmos Crusaders. We are extremely excited to have our second guest, my classmate and good friend, Janina guzman Coloka. So, Janina is a second year PhD student in the astronomy department at the University of Maryland College Park. She got her bachelor's degree in astronomy and planetary science and a minor in physics and communication from Villanova University, and she is from Coupe, a township in San Juan in Puerto Rico. So yeah, welcome Gina. How are you doing?
2: Doing good. Thank you for having me. How are you?
1: I'm good. Uh, appreciate the goodie bag that you gave us earlier. Uh, Janina <laughs> had made some goodie bags for all of her students for the class that she TA's for. She has some extras, so she handed some out to the grad students. So very sweet of her. Uh, definitely made my day better. So appreciated that. Oh. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, we'll get right into it. Um, so starting off, usually how we do, um, talking a little bit about your research. So I know that you're currently in the middle of um, your second year research project at UMD and that you're working on studying exoplanet atmospheres. So I was wondering if you could describe your second year project to us in a little more detail and sort of just what are the main questions that you're trying to understand through your project?
2: Yeah, no, um, of course, that's a really good question. So um, basically for my second year project, I'm working on what are called um, exoplanetary atmosphere retrievals. And the, the, to explain what a retrieval is, is imagine basically observations and modeling coming together in one intersection or one bridge. Um, so basically you have kind of the theoretical community building all these amazing models about um, what exoplanet atmospheres are composed of. And then you have you know our observers that are taking in data from all these different telescopes and kind of building a spectra out of our uh, transit data. I work specifically with um, transit transiting exoplanet data. And basically, retrievals are kind of the intersection where we connect our models to our observations. Um, So basically, it is an algorithm that takes kind of our observation as input, and it basically goes and um, runs different models against the data until it finds its best fit. Um, or like what's called the best fit model um, and the way that it does that is that you have what's called a parameter space sampler and what that does is just an algorithm that kind of just spits out models for different um, combinations of parameters and different permutations of parameters and basically it spits out a model that it then compares against the data and then as it compares against the data it can tell us, oh, we found a model that really fits our data. It really tells us something about um, our, da- our data or our, exoplanet, uh, our exoplanet's atmosphere. And specifically, what I work on is on uh, making these algorithms better. So I study these algorithms personally, um, specifically on speed. So how fast they can run um, thousands of um, repeating models to compare the data against, and also how accurate um, a lot of these algorithms are, and um, in my comparison, I also wrote my own um, forward modeling algorithm. What forward, forward modeling is is um, what pulls out the model to compare the data again. So you have the parameter space sampler that samples the parameter space, but that parameter space sampler has to call a model every time it gives a combination of parameters. Um, And I basically built a algorithm that is model independent that can just take a grid of any kind of models and just pull out a model per permutation of parameter, um, hoping that it will improve performance and doing studies in accuracy on these.
0: So. Wow, that's awesome. That's kind of a lot, especially for someone like me who hasn't studied any sort of science or even astrophysics or anything like that. So, if you don't mind, like could you explain to me a little bit more why the certain parameters that are focused on are chosen and like what do these things sort of tell us about the exoplanets that you're studying? And like, yeah. does it give us any information on if it's habitable and things like that?
2: Yeah, these are these are great questions, y'all. <sighs> y'all are helping me get um, ready for my second year master's. I'm
0: glad. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, So um, some of the parameters that we look or a lot of the parameters that we look at when we um, do retrievals are parameters that can characterize the atmosphere of a planet, right? And these include parameters like temperature, uh, metallicity, what's called CO ratio, and Basically, I don't necessarily choose those parameters myself. Um, They are basically the common parameters in, um, in exoplanet atmosphere models. And they're based off of a lot of our observations that we currently have. So a lot of our models are actually built for Um, what are called hot Jupiters or gas giants. Um, And the reason why that is, is because we just simply have more observations from them. So we had more to build models off of. So a lot of these parameters that I work with are um, not necessarily specific, but better at characterizing these atmospheres. If we were to talk about something um, like habitability, we would have to kind of Um, work on our models a little different and pay attention to different things. So um, one example of this is In terms of CO ratio, that can be really important in kind of defining where the planet might have been formed. Um, It can define kind of the composition of the, the overall composition of the atmosphere or help us understand the overall composition of the atmosphere a little bit better. Uh, Metallicity can help us also understand the composition of our atmosphere a little bit better, keeping in mind that for astronomers, metallicity is, Um, A little bit uh, loosely defined, so anything kind of heavier than helium, um, which is almost all of the periodic table, Um, but it does, it does help us define. Um, the composition of the atmosphere a little bit better. Temperature, just as it sounds, just the temperature of the atmosphere is uh, often at a specific pressure floor, or um, sometimes there are models that are simplified and tell us, oh, well, the whole atmosphere is one temperature, and this is the temperature that it is. We know um, for a fact that this is not necessarily the case, um, but we do simplify our models sometimes in order to draw other parameters and characterize a little bit better our atmospheres. and. In the end, if we were to kind of port that into something like habitability, and we wanted to talk about um, whether this tells us something about the planet being habitable or not, we would actually have to extend our models a little bit um, because of the fact that a lot of what we have right now is based on gas giants and hot um, Jupiters that are close into their stars. If we start talking about rocky exoplanets, there might be things that are different in our models. We might want to focus on on a different dominant um, chemical composition. We might, instead of paying attention to CO, um, to C to O ratio, we might wanna pay attention to how much water there is in the atmosphere. We might want to t- pay attention to how much, much methane, CO2, things that we can conti- things that we might consider biosignatures. And we might even be able with our models to kind of define an overarching habitable parameter or habitability parameter where we say, oh, well, based on the chemical complexity of the atmosphere, based on um, the chemicals that we found on the atmosphere. Um, this is the, you know, this is the probability that it might be habitable. So um, the models would change a lot uh, when we were talking about something like habitability. And um, I think a lot of the reason there are a lot of people already doing great work on coming up with these models, but because there's not much data that we can compare against, um, we're going to have to kind of wait till we get a little bit more data Um, to kind of really, really hone in on our models and make sure that they make sense and that they're working and that we're finding something significant and not just, you know, uh, some noise or something that um, might not actually be physically significant.
0: That's really helpful. That actually makes um, a lot more sense now. But I was just wondering, why do you think it's the case that most of the exoplanets that we have data on and that you guys are studying already are gas giants rather than like the rocky ones that you mentioned?
2: That's a good question. Um, basically, it's a, a lot of it comes down to what's called observational bias. Um, so basically we are biased in what we're able to observe with the technology that we have. Um, the way that I would put this is it's because a lot of our techniques don't actually directly detect planets. We actually only have one technique that directly detects the planet itself and its direct imaging. Everything else actually detects some sort of change in either brightness or motion of the planet's Host star. Um, so, we actually don't really get direct data from these planets. And if you think about it this way, bigger planets are going to have a bigger effect on their stars simply because they're more massive. So, they might cause more effects on the motion of their host star or because they're bigger. So, in terms of transits, when they transit in front of their star, you're going to see a much bigger dip. You're going to see um, a much bigger difference in brightness. So a lot of a lot of these techniques, because they rely not necessarily on detecting the planet itself, but detecting changes in the planet's host star, small rocky exoplanets don't really have that much of an, an, an effect on their host stars. So we don't really see them as much. That doesn't mean they're not there. Um, and uh, this is something that Uh, population surveys and people doing population studies of exoplanets definitely take into account um, when they're trying to come up with population rates for different um, sets of planets. And it's actually also the reason why um, population studies focus on very narrow ranges. Um, So they'll say, oh, this is, you know, we're going to try to figure out the population of um, 1 to 1.5 Jupiter-sized exoplanets um, and around sun-like stars. So they, they really do narrow down on very small ranges and it's actually really difficult to give a comprehensive population analysis of exoplanets as a whole and how common um, planets like Earth are or planets like Saturn are. Um, it's something that, that the community is actively working on every day. Um, and, and we definitely learn something new um, every time new data comes in, um, so yeah.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, really interesting work. Um, I'm not an exoplanet scientist myself, but being around a lot of exoplanet people this year, um, including <laughs> you and a lot of other people in our class, also taking the exoplanets class, I've learned a lot about them. And yeah, I think, especially like sort of like the ties that you have with like astrobiology that we'll get into later with stuff that you want to do, um, I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah, so I guess sort of just transitioning a little bit into your background now. Um, I know that you're born and raised in Puerto Rico. So I was wondering if you could shed a little light into what the experience was like growing up there and sort of how you came to eventually find astronomy as your passion.
2: Yeah, of course. I think that um, when I think about growing up in Puerto Rico there's a lot There's a lot I could say, um, but I think that a lot, um, some of the things that kind of pop out um, is just how, just the people and the ambience um just how people are extroverted and loud and um you know that you you kind of make friends out of strangers um it's really nice um basically I one of the things that I that I actually really miss is just being able to um go out and like just stay out at night, people go to dinner, people will go out and stay out till like seven in the morning, like close out bars. That's something you don't see very much here. And I think it's just very festive atmosphere. Um, People are very amenable. There's also just a lot of sense of social responsibility um that I that I really miss just a sense of of wanting to give a helping hand whenever you can and you really see the island come together um in moments of of catastrophe and disaster and I think growing up in in Puerto Rico really just it it shaped a lot of how I see life and how I see community and how I see um the importance of of um, being and feeling part of something, and feeling part of a community, and um, some sort of um, shared passion. And I think that that, that definitely um, influenced who I am today. Um, I miss getting to go to the beach on Sunday. Um, another part of being in Puerto Rico is that the ecosystem is so diverse. I mean, in, in one island, in a three-hour drive, you get to see a beach or rainforest. You go a little bit south, you see a desert. Um, it's it it really is so like ecologically diverse. Um, you you really breathe a different air just growing up around nature. And I think I think that's something that like when I moved um, to the United States, I moved into like cities. and and suburban areas I kind of realized like wow I really just miss just being more in nature and being more around nature um so it really it really was great growing up and of course like any like any country uh it has its issues and um one of the reasons why I left is because I actually can't um, I actually couldn't pursue what I wanted to do as much in Puerto Rico. Um, yes, we have the the um, radio observatory, which um, collapsed recently. But even when when it was working, a lot of the research and funding was being given to people outside of the island. Um, there's really there was really no um, there was. Attempts, but there was no set good program in place to make sure that Puerto Ricans were actually getting use out of the telescope and getting to do research with the telescope. A lot of our universities, um, most of our universities, all of our universities don't have um, astronomy programs. It wasn't until um, recently where, for example, uh, UPR, the the, kind of like the state school of Puerto Rico, um, one of the one of the campuses actually implemented a minor in astronomy. Um, and this was really recently, and it was actually pushed by um, Puerto Ricans studying astronomy, not only in Puerto Rico, but also in the United States. And I've, I've, I kind of find it really interesting that that's not the case, because when I uh, worked at Goddard, I actually met many people coming from UPR at Goddard who were interested in astronomy, who wanted to do astronomy research. And that's what they, why they ended up here, um, but they didn't have those opportunities in the island. And in in terms of like how I ended up actually like liking astronomy, I think I'm pretty basic on that one. Um, I was the kid that was like three years old or not like five years old, looked at the sky and was like, wow, I want to be an astronomer. My parents got me little like astronomy books and a Stephen Hawking book. And I just kind of it it all went from there. Um, I remember kind of going to the uh, Puerto Rico has this like small like astronomical society that puts out. Um, telescopes sometimes in places, observational telescopes for people to like come and see like Saturn on the sky, Um, and stuff like that. And when I was little, I really would drag my my parents a lot to these things. Um, They were very supportive of it. So like they would find out that, you know, they were putting out telescopes in El Morro, they would take me there. Um, And I I got to meet a ton of people that were kind of, um, just people that that just kind of like to look at the sky for fun, not necessarily work in the field, but um, they do have their own personal telescopes and they kind of helped um, the community engage with um, the subject of astronomy and I think yeah in like eighth grade I I think that's when I fully solidified um, I my, I know that like my parents do have a video of me like even younger than that saying like I want to work at NASA so like it, it was there from the beginning um, but definitely I think around eighth grade was when I started really seeing it as like a future. And really saying, like, yeah, this is, and I and I talked to my eighth grade teacher and I was like, I want to, I want to do astronomy, I want to be an astronomer. Like, what do I do? Where do I go from here? Like, what do I have to do? Um, so yeah, I think that like pretty basic. I kind of just was that one child that you hear about in all in all um <laughs> like graduate school applications. It's like, oh, I see I, you know, I saw the sky when I was five and and I loved astronomy since then. I, I'm that. <laughs>
0: that's such a cute like origin story. I really love that you were really able to do what you wanted to do for your whole life. Um and that like you look back at Puerto Rico with such fondness. I think it sounds really amazing. Um and I hope that you get to go back soon. But um what do you think was one of like the biggest things that you sacrificed by coming here even though you knew that was what you wanted?
2: Yeah, um I would definitely say being close to family and being close to friends um, is definitely one of the biggest ones. Um, I often miss my parents and my family and my friends, um, especially during emotionally difficult times. I think that these are people that, because they watch me grow up, are people that truly understand the context of who I am and where I come from. Um, And um, I think that I I really do miss being around, my people, basically. and um, it it was I also miss I think I also really miss the language. I think that is a really big one. Um I miss getting to just speak Spanish. This is something that I've only recently realized after years of of living in the United States, but I actually have realized about myself that I'm actually much more like honest and open with how I feel when I speak in Spanish. Um, and that's something that I've like slowly noticed about myself when I switch from one to the other. There are people in the department that um, speak Spanish, so sometimes when I'm communicating with them, I realize how like differently I communicate um, in one language and the other. And um, sometimes I feel like I can't fully convey how I feel um, in English, and it can be really incredibly frustrating. Um, I think. I was always open to kind of moving away from the island because one of my biggest things is I wanted to experience um, other cultures. I wanted to be around people from different walks of life. Um, but I think that um, it's it's been enough years here that I'm like starting to kind of look back a little bit more with homesickness at the fact of, of, of missing my people, missing just even the music and the food, like um, just everything about um, where I grew up. I think that I, I had a lot of ambition um, growing up to kind of go out and see the world. And I've been learning to remind myself that I shouldn't get consumed in assimilating and adapting to others. It's good to to kind of want to to see other cultures and experience other walks of life. But I also kind of shouldn't put that part away of myself because it, it really does come back um, to bite you if you do. And, and I think that that's one of the things I realized it's a lot of homesickness, a lot of realizing, wow, I, I, I really do miss um the the my people and my island and the food and the language and my friends my family and just the culture and um especially during the pandemic just like a sense of of social responsibility and it's just it it it's it's like I sometimes I go back to the island when I'm really like not doing really well and I breathe a different air and I realize how much like just being there changes, changes my mood and kind of resets me, um, from any burnout that I might be feeling or, or any of that. Um, so I definitely have slowly been learning to, to kind of not, not put away that part of myself. Um, just, just because I, I realized that doing so was, was affecting me. So, um, definitely, definitely miss it. Um, and definitely sacrificed a lot to be where I am. Um, I think that maybe a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have said the same and I would have said, oh, no, I wanted to do this. I'm here. I wanted to explore the world. And that's still true. And I still, you know, I still want to move around. I still want to see new people. I'm not necessarily saying I'm going to like, like up and come back to the island. um, But, but I definitely sacrificed a lot more than I initially thought when I moved out. um, And, and I learned that throughout the years.
1: Yeah, that's 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 just really telling Um, of not only just how strong the culture is in Puerto Rico. I've never been there personally, but I've definitely heard like from you and from others who have talked about Puerto Rico about how strong that sense of identity is about Puerto Ricans and how proud you guys are of your heritage. And I think that's really that's really amazing. Um, And it shows a lot about you um, and your strength for how you're able to sacrifice so much to really sort of leave all that back home so you can come here and like study what you want to study. yeah it's amazing that I guess now you're like thinking more about not really assimilating because I think as people of color we should never assimilate (laughs) in my opinion like we should always bring we should always bring the parts of our identity that we find that we hold dear to us to our new countries new places and sort of not flaunt them but like hold them like be proud of them because like our heritage are is like extremely important um So I guess now getting into your undergraduate studies, um, I was wondering, why did you decide to go to Villanova to um, study your undergraduate studies and what your experience was like there academically, especially as a foreign student?
2: Um, So why did I decide uh, astronomy? Just astronomy, astronomy 3000 times, basically, um, it was a program where um, it was separate from the physics department. I talk about this a lot. Um, I I understand that I recognize that physics is the foundation of what we work on. But for me, I don't find physics interesting unless the application to astronomy is there and clearly in my face. Um, I genuinely will be bored out of my mind. Um, in context where I only do physics, and I have to kind of, you know, imagine myself trying to come up with an application to astronomy, I only, um, I only find physics interesting in the context of applications that I find interesting, Um, in my case, astronomy, and now even more specifically, um, is exoplanet science and um, spectroscopy. So really, uh, I kind of, even before I applied to undergraduate, was really already looking for astronomy, like places that had astronomy departments, not physics and astronomy or just physics, but there's professors that do astronomy research. I wanted an astronomy department. I think that's part of the reason why I went to Villanova. And and my experience with the department was incredible. I think that because it is such a small department, I really had a lot of chances to um, communicate with the faculty a lot more than some students do. Um, for example, um, in state schools like UMD, as a TA of um, a professor who teaches a 200-person class, I can't even imagine um, a student like having time for for that many students in terms of um, actually engaging them and like having them come to office hours and all of that. So um, basically, having such a small department like what it is at Villanova was kind of a effect that i wasn't expecting but was really really good um it's just having these small classes feeling Important in the department because of the fact that not only are we a small department, but there's no graduate students. It's all undergraduates, um, and I think that that definitely gave kind of a sense of importance to the undergraduates. That was um, that that I valued a lot, and and I felt valued by the faculty. Um, I felt um, like they actually were invested in my future, and that was that was really important to me. Um, Academically, I think that uh, Villanova was just a really enriching experience because of the department that I was in specifically. I think that um, the department itself did a really nice job of kind of preparing me for research specifically. We had um, professors that were really big on not only giving problem sets, but like giving research projects out like during class. Um, just, you know, you go, you do something, you write up something for class, and, and those things were very valuable um, to me and, and learning how to conduct research. Um, so I really, I really did enjoy my time at Villanova um in terms of of the department um it might have been kind of opening it up a little bit more a little bit of a, ja- a jarring experience um because uh, villanova um after all is a private school it is very um full of privilege and i think that um there it, it was for me a little bit jarring to see how much wealth some people actually hold <laughs> um moving from an island where the median income is $20,000 a year. Um, It was just very, um, very jarring to see um, people kind of how, how nondescript people like just paraded their wealth and not necessarily because they meant to. It's just that's that's how they grew up. That's what they grew up with. Like they were meaning to to kind of make me feel bad, and I don't. It's not. I don't hold it against the people, but it was very jarring to kind of see how much access to resources some of these people had that I never had in my life. I could even dream, imaginable. And I'm not even speaking from the sense that I was at, like I, as a Puerto Rican myself, like growing up in Puerto Rico was actually very privileged. I was an only child. I had a lot of things given to me that I was very lucky to have. And even then moving here um, was, and, and especially to a very privileged school like Villanova was very jarring. Um, And I still met incredible people and wonderful people, but just little things like going out shopping with your friends or planning travel or, um, you know, going out to dinner and picking what restaurants you can go to, like even small things like that. Um, really kind of weighed on me how how different of a background I came from um, in comparison to um, some of the other students. And, and, and again, I'm not I'm not even speaking as a as someone who grew up in some of the worst cases that we have in Puerto Rico. So it's just um, just in, incredibly, incredibly disorienting for for a little bit. Um, but I think that between my department and my dance team, um, I think that I really found kind of my space in the university where I felt safe and I felt like there were people that understood, um, even if they came from uh, different backgrounds, understood my walk in life. Um, so, so even though, you know, looking around to kind of the bigger population of the university, I felt a little bit out of place. Um, I really did find my niche and, and it was a really nice experience to be there.
0: That's awesome. I I can't believe, like, I can't even imagine how that experience must have been, especially someone who's lived here my whole life, hasn't really traveled to that many other places. Um, But props to you, and I'm glad that you found a certain safe space on campus. Um, But I was wondering if you found a sense of community with any other Puerto Ricans at Villanova or any Spanish speakers, or was it mostly just the department and your dance team?
2: Yeah, so um, that's a good question. So I did connect um, with um, so, like Hispanics at Villanova. There was a very, um, there was a pretty strong community of Puerto Ricans. So I'll be very small. They were all very tight knit, um, and I did get along with a lot of them, and and I would hang out with them and go out with them. But um, I actually kind of made a deliberate cho- choice um, while I was there to not necessarily just stick to my comfort zone and kind of get out of that, meet new people, kind of find my own places instead of kind of default into a place where I felt safe. Um, So I actually deliberately kind of uh, avoided just hanging all the time, hanging out all the time with them. And and I tried to to make other friends outside of that. And I think that um, I did still connect with a lot of them. And um, my I think my biggest communities was especially um, my my department, and I think that that's just kind of by default because you're all dealing with the same things. Um, so you kind of you you hang out every day. You're in class every day. So um, I I love my um, my my cohort from my undergraduate university, but I also really found a really strong community um, in my dance team, and because we were a multicultural dance team, I think I got exactly what I wanted, which is to meet people from different backgrounds, from different um, stages and places in life and, and really got to experience um, like the world through other people's eyes. And, and I think that's, that's what I was really looking for when I left Puerto Rico. And I still look for is, is to connect with people, um, even if we are worlds apart in, in, how, in how our backgrounds are and who we are. Um, I think that one of the things that I hold very dear in my life is to connect with people. And I think that I deliberately made the choice to kind of step out of my comfort zone there and go look for other places that I could connect with others. But it was really nice to have um, to have that as a backup. It was really nice to have um, the that sense that there is a community I can turn to. And when um, Hurricane Maria happened, that became really important. Um, I had in um, my dance team. Um, someone who knew a person from Puerto Rico in class and that person they actually couldn't reach their family and I actually made my family when I once I finally got contact um, with my family I asked my parents to kind of um, go and see and find out if they were okay because this other student just couldn't like didn't know anything about how their family was doing. So kind of having that community in, in the background was really important, especially in something like when Hurricane Maria happened and being able to kind of rely on each other and help each other when that happened was really important.
1: Yeah, it's great to hear that you had some sort of community there to rely on when devastating things like that happened. Um, so I guess continuing a little bit about your studies in Villanova, um, going a little off a little off what we were talking about earlier, but you pursued a communication minor, which I think is really cool. Um, not something that we usually see in the field. So I've also heard that you have a publication in this field, which is amazing. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, I think that- Uh, I pursued this minor, the easy response is because I want to be a better science communicator, and that is part of it. Um, But I think that the more elaborate response is that I actually find human communication just in general, a very interesting topic. Um, I believe that sometimes just getting to communicate with people from different contexts and backgrounds is a better school than sitting in a classroom. And and like listening to a lecture will ever be. And uh, this is something that I like genuinely believe. Um, We're in this world together, and to kind of try to navigate our humanity from an individual perspective is almost unnatural to me. Um, So I find communication just a very important um, point of, of identity for humans. And trying to understand how human beings communicate in general is is very interesting to me. I constantly want to learn new ways to engage and understand others around me. And this is exactly the the field for that. And that's why I kind of um, picked communication as, as another concentration that I really wanted to focus on. And there's actually this very beautiful theory in communication that states that despite how often we think of humans as warmongering and combative and always fighting for resources, um, most day-to-day human interaction is actually cooperative and it's actually, is actually civil and is actually actually very helpful to each other. And I'll continuously and single-handedly chip away at that misconception that we're supposed to be selfish and individualistic and it's in our nature um, because I think that's just an excuse and a cop-out to kind of avoid and deny some of the most beautiful aspects of being human. Um, so I, I really see communication as, as as a field that is very engaging when you approach it from the sense of this is one thing that all humans have in common, we can communicate with each other. And that's so important. Um, In terms of like the research that I did and the publication that I have in this field, um, I actually took a research capstone class as part of some of my um, requirements in the minor. And it was this visiting professors, this visiting professor um, from a Texas university who was giving a class on um, basically how religion communicates with um, social media. And media in general, not even social media. So it was it was religion in religion through the lens of the media, and basically what this class was dedicated to to studying. Um, we had different we had two different research projects um, in the class. One of them was studying how uh, a church, for example, or um, some other religious of um, uh, some other um, religious institution kind of presented themselves in the media and um, that I did on um, a local Tibetan Buddhist um, institution that was in Philly I worked on on a research on a, a case study for that um, for that particular institution on that and then um, the second project was studying specifically um, what are called multi-site churches um, these are churches that, are um, basically have one big campus and then they have satellite campuses um, and the mass is broadcasted from that main campus so um, the preacher preaches a sermon in um, this one campus and people in the satellite campuses go and attend but see it through kind of a video. Um, They don't see it, they're not there actually in mass. And they also um, do online sermons. So like they also publish uh, all of their sermons online for people to be able to access them and attend them. Um, That's basically the definition of a multi-site church. And um, we worked on, um, we did kind of a six, uh, I think it was six week um, research case study on um, we were given one um, institution so for me it was epic church of philadelphia we were given one multimedia site um, church to study and basically for those uh, weeks we wrote blogs about um, how This church presented itself online. So a lot of the case study was looking at their website, seeing how they presented themselves, um, how that compares to traditional um, expectations of religion, stuff like that. And once we had and had formed kind of that um, case study of how they present themselves online, we were then required to attend several sermons and interview people in these churches and kind of the research itself encompassed comparing their um, online uh, persona basically their online presence versus their in-person presence are they using um are they using media so are they using um, websites are they using media in general as a form to bridge the connection from themselves to different communi- communities? Are they using it kind of as just a tool where they just put information, but everything is still kind of focused on the church itself? Or are they using it to rebuild the idea of what religion is? And that was kind of the study. And we, um, I personally found that Epic Church of Philadelphia kind of had a bridging connection between its personal, um, its its in-person um, presence versus its online presence. It was utilizing media, uh, not necessarily only as a tool because it did have um, interactions that happened online. So it did have its own space online and that is important. It has its own online identity. It's not just a, a, an extended tool or an extended hand of, of its identity in person, but it, most of the components of what it meant to be part of Epic Church of Philadelphia remained in its person, like in-person component. Um, And basically we all kind of worked on on these um, different research and I was, basically my professor reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be part of her paper um because she really liked my work um and my case study that I did with epic church of philadelphia and um basically I agreed to it and after that was a couple of months of editing as as there is from for any publication and kind of synthesizing everything um but in the end it did get published and and I do have (laughs) um an author publication on this uh um on this research, which was really exciting for me um, because it's not my field. It's not my comfort zone. It's nothing that I had ever done before, but it was really exciting to receive a publication on that um, and being able to say like, I I put my heart into everything I do and and that shows and and having that recognized in the form of a publication was, it really really is important to me. Um, So um, it was really nice to, to be able to do that
1: yeah that's amazing um you should send that to me so i can read it sometime that sounds really interesting I can, uh yeah. yeah for sure um so yeah so after villanova i know that you did a postdoc year at nasa goddard in maryland so you have worked at nasa as you always dreamed of which is amazing um can you describe how you got that how you got that position and what your role was there as a postdoc researcher so what were you sort of doing specifically
2: yeah i can definitely uh so little bit of context of how I got there. Um, It starts way before I even got there. Um, I went to a AAAS conference where I saw uh, in the program a talk about biosignatures. This was around actually around the time where I had decided that astrobiology research was something that I was really interested in. So I went to see the talk. Um, it was given by Sean Dama Gold- Goldman. And I came up to him and I asked him, how do I get into astrobiology? I have no idea. I only, I've, uh, this is, you know, new to me but I really find it interesting. I really want to work on it. How do I do it? And he was actually really helpful and took a lot of his time to give me advice and give me a list of programs that I could apply to. In the end, because of um, the list of programs, he told me I ended up applying to a program, a summer internship at Goddard that is put forth by the Astrobiology Institute at Goddard. And I actually got... um, Chosen to go to these in, this internship, um, so summer of 2018, I was working there, and part of the program was actually to bring in civil servants that worked at Goddard and kind of give a talk on what they work on to kind of expose us to different sides of astrobiology uh, astrobiology research. And one of the talks was given by. Um, my previous advisor, Nueva, Villanueva, um, he basically gave a talk about um, some of his Mars research. And I, I basically, it, for me, it was kind of like meeting a celebrity, Um, because a couple of years before I had seen a TED talk given by him in Argentina um, where he talked about his research in Spanish and for me that mattered a lot because I was like wow someone's talking about their research that I find really interesting in Spanish like I want to do that I want to be able to to communicate to my community um, about my research and for me that mattered a lot so when I saw him present I was like oh my god that's the guy from the TED talk that I really like so it was kind of like meeting a celebrity and my roommate at the time know that I actually vacillated a lot whether to go and introduce myself to him. I actually have a journal entry where I talked about how scared I was to go and like introduce myself to a civil servant. I was like, do I just like go and knock on the door? Like what, what the hell? Like, is this what I do? Um, so it was just it was just really funny. Um, and yeah, like my roommates know how much of a mess I was during that time. But finally, I did decide to kind of go and introduce myself and say like, hey, I really like your work. Um, I like I really, you know, I, I saw that TED talk of years, like years ago, I think that was incredible. And he actually turned out to be so amazing and so helpful. Um, and he decided to help me kind of apply to graduate schools that year. Um, it turns out that uh, because because there was a project that I really wanted, wanted to work on in this specific university, I kind of put all of my eggs in one basket and ended up not actually getting chosen for the project and that rejection actually hurt a lot. Um, but at the same time that I received that rejection, Pranima actually invited me to work with him for a year at Goddard as a post Um, And even though I was waiting for other opportunities that might have come around, as soon as I heard that I got to work at NASA again for another year, I was like, yes, let's let's do it. This is what I want to do. Um, and basically, that's how I ended up doing kind of my post-bac at Goddard. And what I did there was actually um, laying the foundations for my current research project. Um, during that year, I developed the algorithm that I was talking about earlier um, that I'm now using to compare against other uh, models and arg- algorithms. So um, it was it was really important work that I got to do with a person that I really admire. Um, so it, it, it really was kind of a rocky path to get there. And I think that um, talking about like that first, the first round of graduate applications and, and how I got rejected, it's just it's just a testament how, it's a testament to how, you know, you don't need to follow one path to get to where you want to be. Um, and that was, that was just a very important um, discovery for me during that process. And, and as soon as, as I was receiving a rejection, I was another door was opening. And that was like, I, I realized how much of myself I should trust and, and trust the fact that if I have, um, if I put in effort and I have that ambition, um, I will make it to where I wanna be regardless of what path I end up taking. Um, so that was that was really important to me, a really important realization, a really important experience to to get to work at NASA for a year as a postdoc. it It definitely solidified the fact that I want to be a research scientist.
1: wow, that's 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 an amazing story. Um, I guess I also want to emphasize, especially to Maybe undergraduates that are watching this or listening to this who didn't have successful graduate applications, because um, I have heard that this cycle was really rough. Um, that there is still a future for you in this field for sure. Um, the thing is, with grad apps is you can talk to any grad admissions staff member. It's a crapshoot. There's so many qualified applications, um, so many qualified applicants, and just not enough spots for people. So amazing researchers like Janina, like somehow don't get into any grad program to first round, their first round through. But it says a lot that you're able to persevere on, um, do really well in the postdoc position and have the strength to apply again and then eventually get accepted to UMD, um, which is really amazing. So yeah, just wanted to stress that grad admissions has no, basically, I don't know, like it's not indicative of who you are going to be as a researcher um, for sure. So yeah, so now getting into your current position as a grad student at UMD, Um, I know that you are currently the graduate student, um, council representative for the second year class. So you serve as a bridge between sort of like the students and the faculty, um, and you are doing a lot to push for positive change in the department, which as grad students, we all really appreciate. So I was wondering sort of what are you prioritizing when it comes to making the department a better place?
2: That's a a good question. I think that, One of my biggest, well, my biggest priority as a representative, I would say, is is advocating for for my classmates and their needs, but that just comes with the job. Um, My personal, my more personal priority is kind of driving the point home that department culture relies on more than just academic interactions. Um, Department culture relies on everyone, not just graduate students. And although time is scarce for everyone, the same way that everyone is expected to Set aside time to attend academically enriching and rigorous events. Everyone should also be expected to set a time aside time to attend culturally and personally enriching events. And the only way to bridge gaps and understand each other is to actually put effort into ourselves as people and not just as researchers and academics. And I think that, as a grad student council representative, I think that is if if there's one one little thing that I can leave to the department, one little mark that I can leave to the department, in my years here is just to make people understand that we need to grow as people and not just as academics and not just as researchers. That is what makes a department strong. That is what makes the department culture better.
0: I respect that a lot. I think that could be beneficial to everyone in the department. Um, And that's awesome. I can't wait to see if it works out that way. so just a little bit more about the department now, your advisor, Eliza Kempton, she's, to my knowledge, um, one of the only two female faculty in the entire department. Um, so obviously, this is something that we want to see change. But do you think it helps at all having um, an advisor who's a woman, not only when it comes to research, but also that shared sense of your identity with her?
2: Yeah, Um. Certainly. I think that um, Eliza has been in a sense an, uh, um, an advocate for me since day one. Um, and that's really mattered to me a lot. Um, but I think that just in general, having a female advisor has been incredible, incredibly helpful, just in very small, subtle ways like having that representation in a stage of a career that I would like to see myself in. Um, Just, just knowing like, oh, like a person like me was able to make it. And like, I admire her so much. Like I want to, so, so that's been really important. And there's also just, and just specifically been moments where my identity as a woman has definitely been part of the reason why I'm suffering or um, not doing as good of work as I would want to. And her ability to empathize empathize with that and even connect with some of my own experiences um, and having shared experiences has made me feel safe in moments where I otherwise didn't. And I think that um, that that has been really important to have. um, And something that kind of I didn't know I needed because um, I she was my first female advisor, um, and she is my first female advisor. And I think that I de- for a very long time I didn't know I uh, this is something that would contribute and and make my experience better because I just hadn't had the chance to have it. Um, so so definitely kind of that thing that you only realize or notice once once you're there and you're like oh wow this is nice like yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can't wait to see more women start to take up higher ranking positions in this field and just make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable um, if they are a female trying to pursue astrophysics or astrobiology, something like that. Um, but furthermore, like going off this topic, um, you're probably the only Hispanic woman in the um, entire department like faculty or students how do you feel about that like what do you what do you what are your general thoughts about that situation
2: <laughs> that's a good question um I think that it's kind of I'm used to it sort of thing uh, it's kind of a um I haven't known anything different kind of thing kind of similar to what I was talking about with having a female advisor um, it's just I, I'm, I'm sort of, I've sort of built myself to, to be used to it and, and kind of not see anything wrong with it. And I guess that, that is just part of me just assimilating to, to, to feel um, like I belong to something, but I definitely think that um, if I give it a little bit more thought, if I sit down and stew on it a little bit, um, I would love to see a lot more um, Hispanic, especially Latina, uh, Latinas in STEM. And Um, I'm, of course, motivated to work with programs. So I've worked with um, this program called GSMI Científico Latino, um, which is a mentorship program where um, you can help Latin Latin American students um, apply for graduate programs in STEM. Um, But I also recognize that the Lack of representation of Hispanic women and Latinas specifically in graduate school and faculty positions does not start at graduate school or faculty positions. It starts much earlier and much younger. And I would also like to get more involved with this communities from early on. A lot of women, especially Latinas, do not even make it to the point of applying to, the, to graduate school or a faculty position because of lack of resources, lack of representation, and cultural even cultural roadblocks. And I want to make sure that um, we work with kids early on to make make them understand that they can be here if they want. They deserve to take up that space if they want to take it up. And I think that um, I, I definitely am growing every day and finding ways in which I can contribute um, more to the community On from early on, making sure that we even get these people here in the first place, we even get Latinas to want to apply to graduate school, to want to be um, in these positions in the first place. Um, and that, that has to be approached from all angles. And that, that, that has to be approached from, from not only bringing them up here, but making sure that the spaces that we're creating are safe for them and are safe for people like me. And I think that um, it, it, is a, it is a very multi-pronged approach that we have to take to be able to um, resolve issues like this. Um, but of course, I, I, although I'm used to it and I, it, because of that, I kind of have protected myself to like feel any sort of resentment over it. Um, I definitely do think that it is an issue that we need to address as as academics. Um, so yeah.
1: Yeah, representation matters um, for sure at every level. Um, so that's something that I hope will change in the field for her. And I guess that's also part of the reason why we even started this podcast to sort of just let people know that people that look like you can make it in this field. So um, I guess now getting into more of sort of our day-to-day life. Um, So work-life balance is something that all graduate students, at least most of us, definitely struggle with because I think a lot of the time faculty may not exactly view graduate students as employees, like a company might like a nine to five, um, which makes the work-life boundaries kind of hazy, which definitely can lead to many problems. Um, So how have you sort of struck a balance during your first two years between research classes, um, TAing and your outside interests? And like, how important do you think having a work-life balance is to being a graduate student?
2: Um, Yeah, this this is a huge question for me. And I think it's one that I'm, still actively learning how to tackle. Um, I think a lot of my problem that has led to moments of burnout is the fact that I did not strike a work life balance as I should have coming into graduate school. And partially that also is due to the global pandemic um, which did shut down a lot of the hobbies that I used to have that happened outside of the context of um, being in academia. Um, But I think Also, for a very long time, I misinterpreted what the life component of work-life balance means. I thought that spending hours on social media or watching an episode a day of my favorite uh, anime was enough for... Um, the life component of that balance to be reached. And I completely fun- I completely forgot that um, pre-pandemic, my body and my mind were very very used to a different life. I was in a dance team. I would take dance practices every week. I, I was active every week. I took singing lessons every week. I would go out with friends and see them daily. I was not doing any of this anymore. And it's been incredibly rough for these two years um, to kind of not have any of those things anymore. Um, And um, basically recently I suffered a a really big loss of a friend um, that I cared about and it genuinely woke me up um, to the reality of the situation. And I started actually questioning why I was in graduate school, um, why I was in a place that was so time consuming that I genuinely lost track of what's really important to me and the people that I care about. Um, I stopped dedicating myself and my time to people that I love, to things that also matter to me a lot. I kept putting off playing with friends or responding to their messages. I kept putting off finding a dance studio um, to dance in. And losing someone as important as um, he was in my life knocked me to my senses because I kind of had to realize that um, as much as I've worked to be here and I want to be here and I want to take up this space, um, it's not sustainable for me to just give up on everything else to be here. Um, It's not sustainable for me to ignore other things in life that really matter to me. Um, My friends, my family, my, um, my hobbies. I am not just an astronomer. I am a daughter. I am a friend to people I love. I am a dancer, I'm a singer. I'm a person who loves to go out and have fun. I'm a person who loves doing arts and crafts and I need I need to maintain those identities for myself. I, I need to continue performing them. I can't just give up on them because I'm I'm in graduate school, and um, this has come this has come to a lot of realization um, in me that. Um, striking that work-life balance is important and that life component of the balance. It's not just being able to have time to sit in social media. It's not just being able to have time and, and, and watch a movie that you like. It's being able to do the things that actually enrich you as a person that you actually feel identified with and putting them down for, um, graduate school, I think has been one of the, the, it has been the leading cost to a lot of of how burnt out i've felt lately and i think that um i'm currently learning to unlearn this that i've learned these past two years in graduate school that i have to constantly be working that i have to constantly be doing those things and and kind of give myself space and grace to do other things to be there for my friends i have to you know, stay up one night working on a homework a little longer than I would have because I chose to have a call with my friend who needed me at that time. Fuck it. That's what I needed to do. And and I think that having that realization and coming to that conclusion that I need to dedicate time to things that are also important to me. And it's not just graduate school. It's not just being here. I've earned my place here, but I also have other things that are important to me. And um, I don't I don't owe it to graduate school to just have it be my whole life. I earned being here and I've proved myself enough and there are times where I should set aside things that I think, where I feel like I need to prove myself, I need to, cons- to constantly work because I need to prove that I deserve to be here. No, I deserve to be here. And I also deserve to have time to dedicate to people that I love and people that matter to me and I have also deserved to have time to do things that enrich me as a person and that I find important in my life and that in the end, lead me to be a more productive researcher, because I'm not burnt out, because I've had that time to connect with my body and do other things that I really find important. So I generally think that work-life balance is so important um, on in in graduate school. And what that life component looks like for you is going to be different for everyone. And even I had a very big misunderstanding of what that life component should look like when I started graduate school. And a lot of it, yes, was due to the pandemic, but I can continued it. Even farther during times where I could have already reached out to dance studios, I continued the habit of thinking that it was just, oh, you know, spending time in social media or having time to do random things. Like, no, there are things that I really do find important and that I really do have to continue doing to, and that form part of my identity. And I think that um, it is really important and, and something that we don't hear enough as graduate students is, is knowing that you earned your place here. Like you deserve to be here and no one should look down on you and no one's going to look down on you if you choose to spend, you know, an extra day on a homework because you needed to help your friend out on something that they were going through. That's that no one should look down on you for that. And I think that um, it, it, just reaching that conclusion that you deserve to be where you are and you don't have to prove yourself constantly And you can take time to be who you want to be outside of graduate school and not let it consume you um, is really important.
0: Well I'm really glad you're starting to rekindle um, with your passions and I'm also really sorry to hear about your friend Um, but I think that this is really good advice especially for me as someone who's about to start graduate school in the fall. So I think I needed to hear that. And I'm definitely going to try and figure out what my life component um, sort of looks like before I get in there um, and hit the ground running. So thank you for that. Um, I think that a big takeaway from that was to prioritize your mental health. And I know that you're part of the mental health task force, which is a joint force between um, both the physics and astronomy department that you guys have at UMD. So um, to my understanding, you conduct a survey um, every so often, but based on the previous survey results, do you feel that most of the graduate students that are in, at UMD have a sense of work-life balance? And if not, are there any resources that your campus or your task force has put into place that can help students figure out how to fix this issue?
2: Um, Of course. Uh, So I think one of the big things that I would say is that um, the survey itself um, mostly gauged um, things like advisor support and imposter syndrome and work life balance does play a role, a big role on the results of, of things like this, but it didn't measure necessarily work life balance directly um We did have discussions, debrief discussions um, with the department at what's called um, what's called a bank seminar. We had a bank seminar dedicated to talking about the results from this survey. and work-life balance actually came up because as I said, it is an important component of, of what we feel is um, the support that we're getting from the department or whether we have um, more or less imposter syndrome. And when it came up, it was a really big point of discussion. Um, And I think in terms of um, having most students a healthy work life balance. um, I, as I said, with with the survey results, I can't really answer that question because we didn't probe that directly. Um, But based on the discussions that happened at the debrief with the rest, with the department and the students that were there, it does seem that this is a really big problem that is contributing to a lot of the results that we see on this survey and in terms of resources um, that the task force has come up with, um, we're actually in the process of writing the report. And a lot of my responsibility is to come up with ideas in how we may remedy and um, the results from a survey like this, how we may um, make issues like imposter syndrome um, not as prevalent in our department. Um, but in terms of healthy work-life balance, one of the things that the Graduate Council did, and, and um, uh, specifically me and another member of the graduate council did is we wrote up a um, survey about uh, workload and the reason why we wrote this survey wasn't for the department or the faculty to see in fact they don't have access to it it was mostly for us as a cohort to kind of gauge how much we work a week how much we work a year so that Instead of having these unhealthy blind comparisons that we make against each other, where like you don't know how much the person next to you is working, but you're assuming that they're doing so much and you need to prove yourself and you need to you're assuming that everyone else is working so hard and you're not and and you need to prove how much you you work and the The point of this survey was to kind of have people fill it out and so that we may digest um, um the results and kind of show everyone that. we're all working hard. You don't need to unhealthily compare yourself to other people and how much they work. You're allowed to have free time. People can take free time. So basically, um, these are the, the, this survey was kind of built to to address a little bit of um, how we handle work-life balance in the department and see how how people in our cohort handle um, work-life balance and kind of probably like like at least come together and and kind of um, provide a unified um, profile of like what what a healthy work life balance looks like to an astronomy UMD graduate student.
1: Yeah, so the, that's amazing and the work that you're going to that you're doing is definitely going to impact our department in many positive ways, so I think we're all really thankful that you're so involved with that. Um, and. I think that more students getting involved with the mental health task force will be really beneficial. Um, Definitely something that I'm gonna look into during my time here. So now looking into your future, um, I was wondering what are some ideas you have to expand your second year project, maybe eventually even into your thesis?
2: Um, That's a good question. So um, basically one of the things that um, we can do moving forward is actually use our, algorithm with real data. Um, So we have JWST data uh, coming in and starting actually pretty soon. Um, A lot of the observation windows from um, the early data release uh, program start around July, end of July. So we're, um, it's really exciting that the community is already gonna have data coming in. And I think that one of the really uh, fun things would be to test this algorithm with real data, especially because it is a model independent algorithm um, and that's kind of the a lot of the important implications that we are looking at um, with having a model independent um, model independent algorithm is that you can input any grid of model. So you know how we talked about earlier how if we're talking about rockier planets or um, we're talking about habitability, we're going to have to constrain the atmosphere in different ways that we constrain hot Jupiter atmospheres. So a lot of the retrieval algorithms that we have built nowadays are um, basically have that um, radiative transfer code integrated that runs the parameters that we find interesting for hot jupiters and it's integrated into the retrieval so it actually a lot of these a lot of these retrieval algorithms are going to kind of not be as relevant if we're looking at smaller planets or we're interested in a different chemical composition or we're interested in different parameters for our atmosphere and one of the things that a model independent um, retrieval algorithm can do is that you can just build your model separately and once you have your grid of models once you have put in all the parameters that you want you have your grid of models you can then use them with your retrieval and the retrieval itself doesn't depend on how you choose to characterize your atmosphere um, because all the models are external they're coming in from a different source you're not running the models directly through the the retrieval code. Um, So one of the things that um, would be really interesting is to see this algorithm applied to real data and maybe even applied to uh, models that are not um, hot Jupiter atmospheres that are rocky exoplanet atmospheres and what we expect them to look like. Um, So that would be really exciting to see.
1: Yeah, that's really exciting research. Um, so I'm excited to see how that progresses in your future here for sure. Um, so I was also wondering, um, because I know that you're one of the organizers for at Bradcom. So how do you inv- get involved as an organizer for it? And do you have any ideas to expand it for the future while you're in graduate school?
2: Yeah, um, so I actually got involved because um, one of an- another UMD student, in um, um, another department, actually uh, wanted to uh, be an organizer for a GracCon and wanted to bid DC as the location for EBGRADCON and she sent an email to the astronomy department asking if um, they could probe for students that would be interested in becoming uh, a core organizer for the conference. And as soon, I I had heard about EBGRADCON from friends that have attended and I was planning to apply. But as soon as I learned that there was a possibility to make it happen in DC and that there was a possibility that Um, people from UMD could host it, I immediately immediately emailed Grace and I was like, I want to be a part of this. I I really want to be a part of this. And that's basically how I ended up becoming an organizer. Um, There's been a lot of roadblocks, of course, because we're still kind of um, in a global pandemic, there was a lot of decisions to be made about whether we wanted to have an international conference happen locally. Um, and we we actually had to, in the end, be forced to make the decision to do it virtually. It's what NASA thought was um, best for the conference. And um, as organizers and who are funded by, by NASA, we had to respect that. So we made um, the conference virtual. Um, and it it, we're hoping that at least that helps engage um, more people in, into the conference internationally, because then they don't have to worry about traveling to another place they don't have to worry about getting travel funding um for the conference and then they can just come and attend and we're really working and trying to make it hard uh, try to work hard to make it a conference that although it's a virtual conference doesn't feel like most of the virtual conferences that we've attended um we we all of us organizers have personally attended virtual conferences and haven't liked the experience so we're really trying to find ways in which we can make this more amenable we can make it more connected especially because one of the points of a RADCON is to bring people, um, especially in such an interdisciplinary field, uh, bring people that want to do astrobiology research together, form connections, forge connections that might lead to white papers and might lead to proposals and might lead to all of these things. Um, so definitely, definitely want to make sure that that sense of community is upheld, even though we're a virtual conference. And it, it yeah, it, I hope to expand this. Um, in my future in graduate school, I hope to make connections that I can actually, uh, people that I can work with and, and bounce off ideas from. I think that one of the reasons why I took matters into my own hands is because astrobiology is so interdisciplinary that sometimes it can feel a little bit disorienting. And you're like, am I an astrobiologist? Am I not? what? And I think that becoming more involved in things like AbGradCon has made me feel a little bit more part of the community and that I can actually pursue the research and the big picture questions that I'm interested in. So
0: that's awesome. I look forward to seeing all the success of AbGradCon and I hope that the virtual event goes well. Sometimes they can be a little bit Confusing to plan, but I'm sure you guys are gonna do great. <laughs> um, so in we're gonna be wrapping up now, but my last big question for you is like in a perfect world, um, where do you see yourself after grad school career-wise? Or do you want to be, do you want to continue in academia? Do you want to be a civil servant or go into industry?
2: Um, civil servant, Anessa. Oh, that was easy. Um, yeah, that, it, that's an easy question to answer me. I really loved working at Goddard. I love the work environment. I love the people there. Um, I really do see myself as a research scientist. I, um, I really, really admire the work that professors do, but I genuinely, it is my personal opinion that being a professor should be a job on its own, separate from being a researcher, um, to Teachers should be teachers and should have time to dedicate themselves to be teachers. And I think that um, what really puts me off about a faculty position is that I feel like I won't be able to be the kind of professor that I want to be for my students. And that really stresses me out personally. Um, So I really do I really do prefer a position where I'm a research scientist and I get to mentor students one-on-one because then I can actually dedicate time um, one-on-one to these students and kind of adapt. How I teach and how I mentor to my students' needs, um, which I don't feel like I can do in a classroom of, of 200 students, like you see here in, in University of Maryland. So, um, definitely, definitely civil servant. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that if I went. Um, the professor way I would want to just dedicate myself to be a professor and then I wouldn't be doing the research that I want to do. Um, so um, definitely just research scientist, civil servant, <laughs> it would be my, in a perfect world, would be my my ultimate goal.
1: Great, well, yeah, whatever um, position you end up getting after graduate school, um, the field is very lucky to have someone like you, Janina. So, awesome. so just ending with some quick hitters uh, as we always do. Um, what are your top three favorite Puerto Rican dishes?
2: Pernil, uh, which is kind of like Puerto Rican pulled pork. Um, Tembleque, which is kind of, is a coconut custard, like um, dessert. And sorollitos de maiz. Um, I would say it's like corn, cornmeal fritters with like, but but sometimes a lot of the times they're like street food. And sometimes a lot of times they're like filled with cheese. And I love that.
1: those all sound fire uh yeah I need to I need to get some Puerto Rican food I don't think I've ever actually had it but yeah all those you need sound to go to amazing. La
2: Famosa there's one in DC so
1: yeah for sure for sure um next uh top five artists
2: oh god um uh Sleeping At Last uh The Script those are my two those are top two uh One Direction uh <laughs> Uh, let's see. Connie uh, Garcia. those are, yeah, those are, we have four. Uh, last one. Oh God damn it this is hard. Um, Donald Glover, Cha Yamina.
0: I like the the range of artistry we have going <laughs> on over here. That's awesome. <laughs> I too love one direction. <laughs>
2: I appreciate someone who also look. <laughs>
0: Okay, next quick hitter. Um, top three favorite female astrophysicists.
2: <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um Henrietta Levitt, uh, Jocelyn Bell and Jill Tarter.
0: Gonna have to, I'm gonna have to Google these people <laughs> right after this.
2: <laughs> Do it. Cool,
0: oh, cool, cool. Okay, amazing, last one amazing women. I'm sure. Last one. Um, top three favorite exoplanets.
2: <laughs> um, Trappist twenty. Um, TOI seven hundred D, just because they're earth-like, close to Earth-sized habitable zone planets. Um, as I like, and then I guess the first transiting exoplanet, which is OGLE TR fifty
1: six B. This naming system is (laughs) crazy.
2: Oh, it's (laughs) sometimes my advisor will pull out like names like just randomly. I'm like, how do you remember all of these? I don't understand.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks, Gina. Uh, Really appreciate having you on. Um, Yeah, our second episode only, so I'm still in the very beginning stages of the show, but we are extremely happy to give you the platform to share. Your story and the causes that are most important to you um so yeah I will see you soon at colloquium
2: (laughs) (laughs) thank you for having me honestly um I I really do wish for y'all the best in this podcast I think that you're doing a great thing here and I really appreciate you guys inviting me and asking amazing questions honestly made me think um so I really appreciate it you you really do put effort into this and and um I hope you know that it's appreciated by me and hopefully the rest of the community so thank you so much that's really sweet
1: (laughs) thank you well see ya
2: bye bye